Hey guys, Tim, alcoholic. Thanks so much. Okay, we're on page 268. This is our last story of our 10-story series. The Pioneers. Tonight's story is Keys of the Kingdom. Commonly uh, misspoken as Keys to the Kingdom, but it's Keys of the Kingdom. And this is the story of Sylvia Kaufman. She got sober on um, September 39 and uh, stayed sober until her death in uh, 1974. So she had about 35 years sobriety. Um, she gets the um, she gets the title of First Lady of Chicago AA. Um, she probably, not definitely, but probably has the longest continuous sobriety at that time. Uh, Marty Mann could have uh, uh, competed for that, but Marty did have at least one, maybe two slips um, during her uh, AA experience. And uh, another thing that Sylvia is known for is that she was the first intergroup secretary first intergroup secretary, not Alcoholic Foundation, not the World Services, what eventually became World Services. This is uh, central office. Central office and intergroup are the same term, uh, just depending on what part of the uh, U.S. Uh, you're talking about. And um, she was uh, the uh, central office or intergroup office um, secretary. All righty. Um, Let's start off and we'll see what else we can come up with. This worldly lady helped develop AA in Chicago and thus pass her, passed her keys to many. A little more than 15 years ago, through a long and calamitous series of shattering experiences, I found myself being helplessly propelled toward total destruction. I was without power to change the course of my life and my, the course my life had taken. How I had arrived at this tragic impasse, I could not have explained to anyone. I was 33 years old, and my life was spent. I was caught in a cycle of alcohol and sedation that was proving inescapable, and consciousness had become intolerable. I was a product of the post-war prohibition era of the Roaring Twenties, that age of the flapper and the it girl, speakeasies and the hip flask, the boyish Bob and the drugstore cowboy, John Held Jr. and F. Scott Fitzgerald, all generously sprinkled with a patent pseudo-sophistication. To be sure, this had been a dizzy and confused interval, but most everyone else I knew had emerged from it with both feet on the ground and a fair amount of adult maturity. Nor could I blame my dilemma on my childhood environment. I couldn't have chosen more loving and conscientious parents. I was given every advantage in a well-ordered home. I had the best schools, summer camps, resort vacations, and travel. Every reasonable desire was, po desire was possible of attainment for me. I was strong and healthy and quite athletic. I experienced some of the pleasure of social drinking when I was 16. I definitely liked everything about alcohol, the taste, the effects, and I realize now that a drink did something for me or to me that was different from the way it affected others. 
It wasn't long before any party without drinks was a dud for me. I was married at 20 and ha had two children and was divorced at 23. My broken home and broken heart fanned my smoldering self-pity into a fair-sized bonfire, and this kept me well supplied with reasons for having another drink and then another. So there's a, an example of her description of a resentment, right? So she's talking about getting married at age 20, has two children, uh, divorced at 23. Uh, her husband was a, um, was a family member, I guess potentially an heir, to uh, the Washington Evening Star newspaper. Um, uh, the family were part owners to that uh, publication. And um, that allowed for a very large alimony payment. So remember, we're talking, uh, you know, mid-30s here, or early 30s here. So her alimony payment was $700 a month. And somebody much smarter than me figured out that in today's dollars, in 2014 dollars, that was 10000 a month. So that was a pretty good alimony payment. And that allowed for her, you know, to basically uh, pursue relief. We'll see later on, pursue relief. Um, uh, 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 of areas that required money. At 25, I had devel developed an alcoholic problem. I began making the rounds of the doctors in, in the hope that one of them might find some, sh some cure for my accumulating ailments, preferably something that could be removed surgically. Of course, the doctors found nothing. Just an unstable woman, undisciplined, poorly adjusted, and filled with nameless fears. Most of them prescribed sedatives and advised rest and moderation. Between the ages of 25 and 30, I tried everything. I moved a thousand miles away from my home to Chicago and a new environment. So she was living in Washington, D.C. or thereabouts and now has moved to Chicago. I know it says a thousand miles there. I, I did look it up, it's 700 miles, but I'll assume, you know, being an alcoholic, she's rounding. I studied art. I desperately endeavored to create an interest in many things in a new place among new people. Nothing worked. My drinking habits increased in spite of my struggle for control. I tried the beer diet, the wine diet, timing, measuring, and spacing of drinks. I tried the mixed, unmixed, drinking only when happy, only when depressed. And still, by the time I was 30 years old, I was being pushed around by a compulsion to drink that was completely beyond my control. So recognize his powerlessness there, right? So there's step one. I couldn't stop drinking. I would hang on to sobriety for short intervals, but always there would be the tide of an overpowering necessity to drink. So there is the, uh, the mental and the physical described. And as I was engulfed in it, I felt such a sense of panic that I really believed I would die if I didn't get that drink inside. Needless to say, this was not pleasurable drinking. I had long since given up any pretense of the social cocktail hour. This was drinking in sheer desperation, alone and locked behind my own door, alone in the relative safety of my home because I, I knew I dare not risk the danger of blacking out in some public space, place 
or at the wheel of a car. I could no longer gauge my capacity, and it might be the second or the tenth drink that would erase my consciousness. The next three years, so now we're talking 33, right? The next three years saw me in sanitariums, once in a 10-day coma from which I nearly, I very nearly did not recover, in and out of hospitals or confined at home with day and night nurses. By now, I wanted to die, but had lost the courage even to take my life. I was trapped, and for the life of me, I did not know how or why this had happened to me. And all the while, my fear fed a growing conviction that before long, it would be necessary for me to be put away in some institution. People didn't behave this way outside of an asylum. I had heart sickness, shame, and fear bordering on panic, and no complete escape any longer except in oblivion. Certainly now, anyone would have agreed that, that only a miracle could prevent, could prevent my final breakdown. But how does one get a prescription for a miracle? For about one year prior to this time, there was one doctor who had continued to struggle with me. He had tried everything from having me attend daily mass at 6 a.m. to performing the most menial labor for his charity patients. My, why he bothered with me as long as he did, I shall never know. For he knew there was no answer for me in medicine. And he, like all doctors of his day, had been taught that the alcoholic was incurable and should be ignored. Doctors were advised to attend patients who could be benefited by medicine. With the alcoholic, they could only give temporary relief. And in the last stages, not even that. I was a waste of the doctor's time and it was a waste, excuse me, it was a waste of the doctor's time and the patient's money. Nevertheless, there were a few doctors who saw alcoholism as a disease and felt that the alcoholic was a victim of something over which he had no control. They had a hunch that there must be an answer for these apparently hopeless ones somewhere. Fortunately for me, my doctor was one of the enlightened. So this story is written for the second edition, 1955. So the AMA had already classified alcoholism as a disease. So that's why we see that, that word being used there. And her doctor, who was unusual for his day, was Dr. Seth Brown. And he's the one that sort of pushed her along on this. And watch what happens here. And then in the spring of 1939, and what do we know what's coming now with that date? The big book. A very remarkable book was rolled off a New York press with the title Alcoholics Anonymous. However, due to financial difficulties, the whole printing was, for a while, held up and the book received no publicity, nor, of course, was it available in the stores, even if one knew it existed. But somehow, my good doctor heard of this book, and he also learned a little about the people responsible for its publication. He sent to New York for a copy, and after reading it, he tucked it under his arm and called on me. That call, that call marked the turning point in my life. Until now, I had never been told that I was an alcoholic. Few doctors will tell a help, hopeless patient that there is no answer for him or for her. But this day, my doctor gave it to me straight and said, people like 
you are pretty well known to the medical profession. Every doctor gets his quota of alcoholic patients. Some of us struggle with these people because we know that they are really very sick. But we, all, but we also know that, short of some miracle, we are not going to help them except temporarily, and that they will inevitably get worse and worse until one of two things happens. Either they die of acute alcoholism, or they develop wet brains and have to be put away permanently. So that's Dr. Seth Brown quoting, right? That's a quote from him. Uh, and, and what's the phrase that we, we get that get in AA from this last sentence? That there's really only three things that happen to us, jails, institutions, or death. With progressive outcomes, if you don't stop, those are your, those are your options. He further explained that alcohol was no respecter of sex or background, but that most of the alcoholics he had encountered had better than average minds and abilities. He said the alcoholics seemed to possess a native acuteness and, a, and usually excelled in their fields, regardless of environmental or educational advantages. We watch the alcoholic performing in a position of responsibility, and we know that because he is drinking heavily and daily, he has cut his capacities by 50%, and still he seems to do a satisfactory job. And we wonder how much further this man could go if his alcoholic problem could be removed, and he could throw 100% of his abilities into action. But of course, he continued, eventually the alcoholic loses all of his, all of his capacities as his disease gets progressively worse. And this is a tragedy that is painful to watch, the disintegration of a sound mind and body. Then he told me there was a handful of people in Akron and New York who had worked out a technique for arresting their alcoholism. He asked me to read the book, Alcoholics Anonymous, and then he wanted me to talk with a man who was experiencing success with his own arrestment. This man could tell me more. I stayed up all night reading that book. For me, it was a wonderful experience. It explained so much I had not understood about myself and best of all, it promised recovery if I would do a few simple things and be willing to have the desire to drink removed. Here was hope. Maybe I could find my way out of these agonized out of this agonizing existence. Perhaps I could find freedom and peace and be able once again to call my soul my own. The next day, I received a visit from Mr. T, a recovered alcoholic. So here she's talking about Earl Treat. This is the story from last week. He sold himself short. Earl Treat uh, is a co-founder of AA Chicago, and Sylvia ultimately uh, assists him in, that, in, in growing that, uh, that uh, seed. I don't know what sort of person I was expecting, but I was very agreeably surprised to find Mr. T a poised, intelligent, well-groomed, and mannered gentleman. I was immediately impressed with his graciousness and charm. He put me at ease with his first few words. Looking at him, I found it hard to believe he had ever been as I was then. However, as he unfolded his story for me, I could not help but believe him. So here is again another example, and it's great for me to remember this, is that Earl Treat shows up to her not to tell her what to do. He shows up to tell her his story. That's the connection. 
in de describing his suffering, his fears, his many years of groping for some answer to, to that which always seemed to remain unanswerable. He could have been describing me and nothing short of experience and knowledge could have afforded him that much insight. He had been dry for two and a half years and had been maintaining his contact with a group of recovered alcoholics in Akron. Contact with this group was extremely important to him. He told me that eventually he hoped such a group would develop in the Chicago area, but that so far this had not been started. He thought it would be helpful for me to visit Akron, the Akron group, and meet many like himself. So uh, the story goes, uh, she ultimately does go down there. For those of you who know uh, the story that was taken out of the third edition, Home Brewmeister, which, which was written by Clarence Snyder. Clarence Snyder was, uh, the, co was the founder of AA Cleveland. Um, Clarence's wife, Dorothy, had a sister in Chicago and uh, um, the sister is responsible for getting um, Sylvia down to Akron. Now the problem with this was Sylvia's uh, uh, a divorcee and attractive and fairly young and money and a socialite. So Dr. Bob on initial hearing that a female was coming, because they had not had success with females yet, uh, was concerned that it was gonna throw the group, the Akron group into a little bit of a disarray. Uh, so Sylvia goes down to Akron and lives at the, at the Snyder's house. Uh, yeah, I guess lives at the Snyder's house and uh, the, uh, for a little while and then I guess ends up in Akron. Either way, it doesn't matter. Maybe lives in, lives in Cleveland and commutes back and forth to Akron uh, for exposure to the group. And um, there was, uh, on Dr. Bob's part and maybe some other people, including maybe some wives of uh, alcoholics, there was a, 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 an encouragement for Sylvia to go back to Chicago and not stay in Akron. She originally said, wow, the, you guys are doing great stuff here. I should move down here. She could move wherever she wants, right? I should move down here. And they said, no, you should go back and help uh, Earl Treat back in Chicago, right? Well, everybody wanted to do a 12-step call. <laughs> By this time, with the doctor's explanation, and, uh, the revelations contained in the book and the hope-inspiring interview with Mr. T. I was ready and willing to go to the ends of the earth if that was what it took for me to find what these people had. So I went to Akron and also to Cleveland, and I met more recovered alcoholics. I saw in these people a quality of peace and serenity that I knew I must have for myself. Not only were they at peace with themselves, but they were getting a kick out of life such as one seldom encounters, except in the very young. They seemed to have all the ingredients for successful living, philosophy, faith, a sense of humor. They could laugh at themselves, clear-cut objectives, appreciation, and most especially appreciation and sympathetic understanding for their fellow man. Nothing in their lives took precedence over their response to a call for help from some alcoholic in need. They would travel miles and stay up all night with someone they had never laid eyes on before and think nothing.
nothing of it. Far from expecting praise for their deeds, they claimed the performance a privilege and insisted that they invariably received more than they gave. Extraordinary people. I didn't dare hope I might find for myself all that these people had found, but if I could acquire some small part of their intriguing quality of living and sobriety, that would be enough. Shortly after I returned to Chicago, my doctor, encouraged by the results of my contact with AA, sent us two more of his alcoholic patients. By the latter part of September 1939, we had a nucleus of six and held our first official group meeting. I had a tough pull back to normal good health. It, it had been so many years since I had not relied on some artificial crutch, either alcohol or sedatives. Letting go of everything at once was both painful and terrifying. So initially she didn't let go of both. She stopped drinking, but uh, you know, some people noticed that she was constantly taking these little white pills and she seemed like high later on. So uh, she didn't get that concept that you get rid of it. I could never have accomplished this alone. It took the help, understanding and wonderful companionship that was given so freely to me by my ex-Alki friends. This and the program of recovery embodied in the 12 steps. In learning to practice these steps in my daily living, I began to acquire faith and a philosophy to live by. Whole new vistas were opened up for me, new avenues of experience to be explored, and life began to take on color and interest. In time, I found myself looking forward to each new day with pleasurable anticipation. AA is not a plan for recovery that can be finished and done with. It is a way of life. And the challenge contained in its principles is great enough to keep any human being striving for as long as he lives. We do not, cannot outgrow this plan. As arrested alcoholics, we must have a program for living that allows for limitless expansion. Keeping one foot in front of the other is essential for maintaining our arrestment. Others may idly in, excuse me, others may idle in a retrogressive groove without too much danger, but retrogression can spell death for us. However, this isn't as rough as it sounds, as we do become grateful for the necessity that makes us toe the line, and we find that we are compensated for a consistent effort by the countless dividends we receive. A complete change takes place in our approach to life. Where we used to run from responsibility, we find ourselves accepting it with gratitude that we can successfully shoulder it. Instead of wanting to escape some perplexing problem, we experience the thrill of challenge and the opportunity it affords, it affords for another application of AA techniques. And we find ourselves tackling it with surprising vigor. The last 15 years of my life have been rich and meaningful. I have had my share of problems, heartaches, and disappointments because that is life. But also I have known a great deal of joy and a peace that is the handmaiden of an inner freedom. I have a wealth of friends and, with my AA friends, an unusual quality of friendship. Excuse me, an unusual quality of fellowship. 
For to these people, I am truly related. First, through mutual pain and despair, and later through mutual objectives and newfound faith and hope. And as the years go by, working together, sharing our experiences with one another, and also sharing a mutual trust, understanding, and love, without strings, without obligation, we acquire relationships that are unique and priceless. There is no more aloneness with that awful ache so deep in the heart of every alcoholic that nothing before could ever re reach it. The ache is gone and never, and never need return again. Now there is a sense of belonging, of being wanted and needed and loved. In return for a bottle and a hangover, we have been given the keys of the kingdom. So uh, she did end up uh, marrying later on in um, sobriety, and she uh, moved down to Sarasota, Florida, and she married uh, a, a fellow AA -er, uh, a Dr. Uh, Ed S., and, um, you know, uh, lived until her death uh, in Florida. So that's all I got for you.